<laughs> I was out in the car the other night for a drive with uh, William, and uh, we uh, <clears throat> were following this uh, SUV, we pulled up to a traffic light behind it, and as we got close, I noticed that um, it was uh, one of these SUVs that are equipped with the pull-down, you know, video screens for the passengers, so the front seat passenger and the rear passengers could be watching a movie or whatever while the car's driving. So uh, that prompted a comment by me, and um, which then entered us into a, a discussion about such devices. Were they appropriate or inappropriate, good or bad? Though, you know, that kind of a father-son type discussion. And uh, I'll confess, my uh, orientation towards the topic was uh, that they seemed, and I know I'm going to get a letter on this from somebody sitting out there, um, it didn't seem to me to be necessary. And so I was commenting along those lines that some crotchety statement like, why don't they just look out the window? You know, they don't, <laughs> they don't need to have, to have that, right? They're, they're not essential. They're not needed. And uh, so that was kind of my orientation. And uh, William's orientation was, uh, well, why not? He just, he just looked at it and he said, well, you know, why not, Dad? There's certain advantages that come from such a thing. And he began to name some of those off. And, you know, I had to admit that he had... He had a number of good points with regard to that. So we went out and had um, video monitors installed in our 20-year-old... Um, no, I just... Not so. <laughs> but anyway, but, but I was reflecting on that conversation this week. And in particular, I was reflecting on it with regard to um, what we're going to look, like, look at tonight in uh, Hebrews 8. And what, uh, what kind of came to me from that conversation was that... that he and I each had a different perspective. We just came to this event um, with two different perspectives. And uh, my perspective was more of the old is good enough. And his perspective was the new is better. And so I you know, was thinking about that. And I thought, well, some of that probably has to do with generational differences and, and that sort of thing. You know, me being old and, and uh, him being young. But, uh, but I think it illustrates... In just a, at least in a small way, what really the whole issue in the book of Hebrews is. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Hebrews 8. And uh, we've said this uh, a number of times, and I can't say it enough, I don't think, because it's, it's critical to a proper interpretation of this book. This book has uh, twisted a lot of people up um, in, in terms of uh, Bible interpreters. And I think that if, if we can just come at it with this Basic understanding, it really helps sort the text out. And the basic understanding, as I continue to say to you, is these people were under severe persecution. You know, this, this book is written sometime before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, maybe, you know, four or five years perhaps before the temple is destroyed. But by this time, the break with Judaism and Christianity is significant. There is, there is no uneasy peace between them. In fact, there's overt hostility. And so to, to convert to, uh, to Jesus Christ, to, to say that the crucified one was indeed the Messiah of Israel, was to cut yourself off from the community. All that you had been brought up with, all that you knew in life, all that was old and familiar had to go. 
in order to attach yourself to Jesus Christ. And so there was a tendency, particularly when persecution came, to want to marry backwards, to bring some of that old stuff back in and say, okay, I'm aligned with Christ, but I'm still, you know, I've got one foot in the old camp too. And the writer here is, he cannot say it often enough, and that is that Jesus plus anything amounts to no Jesus at all. Anything added to Christ is a subtraction, it's not an addition. And what ends up happening is you lose the purity of Jesus Christ. And so they can't go back. They can't uh, reach back into their old past and bring forward some of that old stuff and, and add it on. So the old won't do. It's not good enough. It has to be new. It has to be entirely new. And he's going to continue to hammer away that theme for us. I've entitled this, uh, this lesson, Better, Better, Better. And... Um, Actually, uh, that title is going to stick with us for a number of weeks because that title applies to the whole section beginning here in 8.1 and running all the way over to uh, chapter 10 and in verse 18. It's one big unit of thought. And it really falls under this concept of better, better, better. Better covenant, better sanctuary, better sacrifice. And that's what he's going to continue to hammer home and In order to be faithful to the text, that's what I'm going to continue to hammer home as well. What we have before us tonight, as we look at verses 1 through 7 of Hebrews 8, is an introduction. It's just an introduction to this whole section of better. And he will introduce the themes in verses 1 through 7 that we will pick up and explore in greater detail in the coming weeks. Better covenant, better sanctuary, better sacrifice. Let me read the text for you. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. As we go through this uh, introductory section uh, tonight and really setting up this next uh, three chapters of the epistle, what I want to do is briefly examine seven reasons that he gives in these seven verses. Seven reasons why the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And the reason I want to do it is to just grow our appreciation of Jesus Christ. I think that the more we know, and we talked about this last week, the more we know him, the more we'll love him, the more we'll appreciate what it is we have in Christ. When we compare it to what the the saints of God had under the old covenant, it is night and day. It is so much better now. And I, and I think that that 
kind of, of uh, understanding builds our appreciation, builds our love for Jesus Christ, and stimulates our true worship of who he is. So we're going to hammer away tonight on better, better, better. As I said, he has established in the first seven verses the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's been laboring away at that. And now he's going to, he's going to kind of turn the corner and he's going to talk about this new priest, Jesus Christ, and he's going to use him as the springboard to talk about the covenant, the sanctuary, and the offerings that this new priest uh, brings in with him. The Levitical priesthood had its own sanctuary. It had its own covenant. It had its own set of sacrifices. The new priesthood of Jesus Christ, the priest, like under Melchizedek, brings with him a new sanctuary, a new covenant, and a new sacrifice. The old stuff has to go away. It all has to pass, and the new has to come. You cannot hang on to the past. You've got to let it all go in Jesus Christ. And so... New sanctuary, a heavenly sanctuary, not an earthly one. New covenant, not the old covenant of law, but the new covenant of promise. New sacrifice, not the old, repeated, ineffectual sacrifices of, of animals, but the new, single, solitary, eternally effective sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. That's the theme in these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10 before us. So, Let's kind of dive in here and look first at, as you see in your handout, a better sanctuary. A better sanctuary. And there are three reasons given, and they're given in very short, uh, you know, synopsis kind of form here. But they will be expanded on in the weeks to come as the material unfolds before us. But there are three reasons why it is a better sanctuary that he introduces for us here. And the first reason is that it is a heavenly sanctuary and not an earthly sanctuary. Simple as that. It's heavenly, not earthly. Verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 8. Now, the main point of what, have been, what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, the main point, he says, is this. Evidently, the uh, writer was concerned that the readers of his epistle might have have gotten lost a little bit in his argumentation. He has been working through, for the last three chapters, the notion of the priesthood after Melchizedek, right? And I know as I've stood up here to, uh, to explain it to you, and as I've sat in the, in the study with the books open all over my desk for hours, pondering it myself, I've found it to be kind of confusing. And looking out there at some of your faces, you know, in your furrowed brows, as I've attempted to explain it, you found it kind of confusing too. Some of you were even honest enough to come up to me and say, you know, I'm not sure I got what you were saying uh, tonight. They say uh, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And so uh, that's probably true. If I'm not clear in my own mind, then there's no way that then you're going to be clear either. But we're not alone. I, I guess I just point that out to you to take some comfort in this. That under inspiration, the writer here to the Hebrews is concerned that maybe in that, that rather intricate argumentation that he has introduced here, that he's lost a few readers as well. So he sums it up here. He says the main point and what has been said is this. If you've missed all the details, don't miss the big picture. That's what he's trying to say to you. The big picture here is that Jesus Christ directly or indirectly is our great high priest. And all that I've been talking about points to him. It all just points to him. If you, you know, it's almost like the Sunday school answer. 
That is, you know, your, your kids come home when they're young from Sunday school and you say, what did you learn about in Sunday school? Jesus. <laughs> right? You know, that's the, that's the safe answer, right? <laughs> Whether the kid was, you know, eating the crayons or, you know, or daydreaming or whatever, they, as long as they come home and say, Jesus, and, you know, they, well, they must have got the point of the lesson. <laughs> So, uh, you know, if you've been sleeping through the first seven chapters here and I say, well, what's the main point? You say, Jesus. Well, then, yeah, you're right. That is it. That's the main point of what's been going on here. Okay. Everything has been pointing to Christ. He is the fulfillment of all that the, uh, the author here has been laboring away to point out. Now, we said this before again, but we, it bears repeating the tabernacle, and I've included a, a picture there for you. You know, this is my high-tech uh, PowerPoint presentation uh, tonight. Your um, single-folded color picture of the tabernacle. And uh, I include that for you uh, because we're going to refer to it a couple times. But, but one thing I want you to notice as you take a look at that picture is that there's uh, various uh, items of furniture there in that tabernacle, isn't there? And in the, uh, the meeting area or outside it. But the one piece of furniture that is conspicuously absent from this picture is a chair. There is no chair to be found anywhere near it. Okay? And in Solomon's great temple and as rebuilt, uh, rebuilt under Herod, there is no chair either. There is no place to sit down. Okay? And the reason is, uh, as the writer will point out here, chapter 10, verse 11... So you can kind of just flick over there and get it fixed into your mind. There's no place to sit down because the work is never done. Right? Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Want a, you want a dead-end job? Right? You're looking for a dead-end career, a Levitical priest. That would be right high on the, uh, on the uh, <clears throat> scale of dead-end jobs where you're going nowhere. You know, you're, you're never finished. It's just over and over and over. You're standing daily doing the exact same repetitive motion and getting nothing out of it. Okay, never, never being able to close the toolbox at the end of the day and say, wow, I did it. You know, let me sit down and take a breather. No seat in the tabernacle at all. But for the second time in this letter, the writer here points out the fact that our great high priest, the one after the order of Melchizedek, the one that replaces the Levitical priesthood, he, when he's finished, does what? He sits down. He sits down. And he sits down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He sits down not in the earthly tabernacle. He sits down in the heavenly one. Okay? A better sanctuary, as I've said, because it's a heavenly one. It's a versus an earthly one. And it's one that has a seat in it. Okay? Unlike the seat or the lack of a seat here. Let me see if I can take a stab at illustrating this. Uh, you and I tomorrow, we're going to head off to work, right? Our various places of business. We'll get up and we'll... We'll go off to work. Well, the same was true for the Levitical priests. You know, the conversation might go something like this. Uh, Bye, honey, I'm off to the office. And, and she says something like, well, be careful. Don't get blood on your new tunic, you know. <laughs> and because uh, it's just the same thing over and over again. But 
when Jesus left for work, entered into the glories there of the heavenly sanctuary, he sits down. He sits down because he's all done. He sits down because the work is finished. It's a better place with a, with the, where the work is done. Notice uh, again, chapter 1, verse 3, I say the second time he mentions this. Sitting down and where he sits is at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or here, the majesty in the heavens. Just another way of saying God the Father. He sits down at the right hand of God the Father. And according to Psalm 110, verse 1, he sits there and he's waiting for something. And what he's waiting for is for God to put his enemies under his foot like a footstool. And when that's done, when the kingdoms of this world have run their course, according to Daniel 2, then he will return. He is the stone cut without hands that crushes Nebuchadnezzar's statue and then fills the whole earth as a mountain, that great kingdom. So Jesus Christ is there with his finished work in the heavenly, not earthly, sanctuary, and he is sitting and he is waiting. Well, another reason that it's a better sanctuary, not just that it's a heavenly one, is that it's the original, not the copy. Verses uh, 2 and 5 kind of bring that to the fore. It says he's a minister in the sanctuary, which is the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Now, the uh, sanctuaries of or sanctuaries or tabernacles that were prepared by Moses in the desert, you've got the picture again to look at, was a place of beauty. It was portable by necessity, and so it, it had to be able to be taken down, but it was still quite a, quite a thing of beauty. You look into the, uh, the cutaway there of the Holy of Holies, and you can see the cedar planks and the gold leaf and the beautiful uh, tapestries and so forth that are, that are in there. It's quite a gorgeous place. Portable, yes, but, but very, very gorgeous. And you think about Solomon's temple and how beautiful Solomon's temple was and then even Herod's enhancement of it. These were magnificent works built from cedar and gold and brightly colored fabrics and white marble and so forth. They were just spectacular. But as beautiful as they were, there's a major flaw. And the major flaw is that they are, they're not the real thing. They're just not the real thing. God never lived there. God would, would allow his presence to be localized there, but God never lived there because they were a copy. They were not the true. They were not the real sanctuary. Look again, verse 2. He's a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle. Now, that's not true as opposed to false. That's not the point. He's not saying that this, uh, these earthly tabernacles that were constructed under the specific instructions of God were not, they were not false tabernacles. They were just, they were not the original tabernacle. They were a, they were a copy of it. They were an apparent tabernacle as opposed to the true tabernacle itself. And that's true, by the way, of all religious expressions made with human hands, right? They are only approximations. They are only copies. They are never the originals, whether it be buildings or whether it be sacred objects or even rituals given by God to his people. I'm not talking about pagan copies now. I'm talking about the the things that the people of God were told by God to do or to build. We're always nothing but copies, nothing but shadows, 
They didn't, they weren't the one and the true, the original. And when the one, the true, the original comes, it supersedes all the copies. We can uh, <clears throat> just look at a couple of verses here to kind of reinforce this idea that, that God never intended these to be the, the, uh, the original or the final. Always a copy, always something pointing forward. If you, uh, you turn with me, for example, to uh, Acts 19 and verse 26. Here it is uh, speaking in the context of, of uh, pagan idolatry, but I think it still enforces the point. Paul says, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, uh, Paul's not writing this, but the silversmith is, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So there, here, Paul was attacking the false gods of the pagans, but he's continuing to point out that the, the work of the human hand can't be the original. He says over in uh, chapter 7, verse uh, 58. We get over there. Well, whatever he said in 758 is uh, not what I intended him to say. So uh, that's a good verse. But um, that's not the verse I was looking for. So we'll just move on beyond that one. And, uh, but, uh, he's, uh, the point of it was that it, whatever verse it is there in Acts, he says that God doesn't dwell in, uh, houses made of human hands. What is it? 48. Okay, good. 748. God doesn't dwell in, in places made by human hands. There was never any sense in which God would truly dwell in a man-made human tabernacle. And lastly, over in Colossians 2.11, we won't turn there, uh, uh, just in case it's the wrong reference, but no. <laughs> Over in uh, Colossians 2.11, there it says that uh, circumcision was again the work of, God, of man's hands and it is not the true circumcision, which is of the spirit. Okay? So all of these things, uh, some of which were God-given, are only approximations. They're only shadows. They're only pointing towards the real reality. They're not the original. That's the point. They're not the original. They are but copies. And notice back in Hebrews 8 again, verse 5, just kind of jumping down there, it says that uh, these, uh, these priests, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. From the very beginning... From the very beginning, it was never intended for the people to, to understand this to be the final, um, the final place of God's resting. It was always for them to be a temporary, a copy, a shadow, something pointing towards a greater reality. And notice, uh, we've got a quote here from Exodus 25, 40. We'll go ahead and turn back there and read the whole verse. So go back to uh, Exodus 25 and, and verse 40. 
God's giving instruction to uh, Moses here. And he says, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. That is a tantalizing verse, a very tantalizing verse. The, uh, the uh, word when it is brought over into the Greek is, uh, is tupas, and it means, um, it means pattern. Uh, a tupas would be, for, for example, uh, when the U.S. mint is, is um, um, minting coins, for example, a penny, they have, they have a set of dies, right? And they run the copper into the dies and it's, and it's hit and out comes a penny and it looks exactly like the die. It's the, and the, the die is the tupas, it is the pattern after which the penny is stamped out. And so it's an exact replica in every single way. And so here in uh, Exodus, as I say, it's tantalizing because Exodus 25 and verse 40 God is telling Moses that he's to make everything after this particular pattern that they have. A pattern shown to him, it says, on the mountain. Now, we don't want to forget that the context here of Exodus 25 is Moses is being instructed to make a whole bunch of stuff, right? He's being instructed to make this tabernacle, but he's also being instructed to make all the, uh, the other uh, accoutrements of worship that are going to, going to fill this thing up. And he's in all of the detail. And, you know, we read through this. Many of us read through this this past year. Right. And it's kind of laborious to read through there. This thing will be, you know, so many cubits and a hand breadth, And, you know, and you'll make it exactly that way. And it's just repetitive on and on. And you're reading through it and you're thinking, OK, I got the point. You know, you don't have to say it over and over again. But but God did say it over and over again because he was very concerned that it was made exactly like it was supposed to be made exactly like the tupas, the pattern. And notice again, it says a pattern which was shown to you up on the mountain. If you just take the words for what they say right here, Moses saw something. Moses saw something up on that mountain. We don't know what he saw. It would be fun to speculate that he saw perhaps some sort of a model. I don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was, it was a pattern. And he was to strictly follow that pattern. I think perhaps one possible understanding of this is that Moses was shown a vision while on the mountain. You remember when we read through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48, (coughs) excuse me, gives a, a long and detailed description of a temple, right? Ezekiel's temple, the millennial temple. And in there, there are there are all the measurements. And he's to build this thing precisely according to all these measurements. Well, that was all in a vision. Ezekiel was given a vision. And so perhaps Moses was given some kind of a vision as well up there on the mountain. But whatever he saw, whether it was in a, a, you know, a, a picture in a vision or whether it was an actual scale model in in some sense, We don't know, but what we do know is that he was very strictly admonished to build this earthly tabernacle to be exactly like it, to be exactly like it. Not the original, but a precise copy of it. You know, the the earthly tabernacle, back in Hebrews 8 again, the earthly tabernacle was kind of like a Xerox copy, if I can say it that way. Years ago, when I used to uh, to work at the bank, we would uh, you know we would make a new loan arrangement. You would have the original loan agreement, 
that everybody would sign in ink, right? And then they would be run through the Xerox machine and there would be a copy made of it. Actually, several copies would be made and distributed to various parties. And these copies were exact in every detail. There was, you know, you have the original, you have the copy, you look at them side by side and, and they're the same. You know, even down to the signature, it looks the same. There is no difference. Yet the bank was very insistent that we take the original note and we put it in a vault. But we could keep the copy in a file cabinet. And in fact, when the loan was paid off, the borrower always wanted back the original note. They didn't much care if you had copies of it laying around. They wanted the original note back. And that illustrates, I think, in a, in a way, what's talking about here. The copy is exact. The Xerox copy was exact, but it wasn't the original. It didn't have the reality of the original. And so that's what he's seeing here is that there is a, there is a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things where they serve, but it wasn't the real McCoy. It's not the real McCoy. The place where Jesus serves is a heavenly sanctuary, and it is a better sanctuary because it is the original sanctuary itself. Now, uh, some Bible teachers will take this whole notion about uh, exact copy and so forth, and they can really run with this thing. And uh, there are books you can buy that want to exegete every every uh, piece of furniture and every type of building material that, that the tabernacle is made up of and so forth. And sometimes it can get pretty far afield in, in that sort of thing. I guess I'm comfortable saying that uh, certainly the tabernacle uh, portrays the reality of God meeting with his people. Certainly the uh, mercy seat, the Bible tells us, portrays Christ's propitiation where he satisfies the wrath of God and, and, and uh, for his people there. And so there is, a, there is a very real sense in which the tabernacle communicates truth about God. I, I guess I would say that um, I'm comfortable with whatever the Bible uh, exegetes with regard to the, the furnishings and the building materials and, and shows us its fulfillment in Christ. I'm happy with that, and, and I just as soon let everything else remain as a mystery before God. But we, uh, we or Jesus rather, does serve in this original tabernacle not a copy third reason third reason is back up into um, into verse two it's the end of verse two and that is that this heavenly sanctuary this better sanctuary it's it's better because it's built by god and not man and it's you know kind of a simple reason but it's it's a reason it's true it was built by god not man you know how whatever now however good a job man does it's always flawed it's always subject to the sands of time, corruption and rot and decay. You know, you can look at some of the greatest architectural feats of mankind would be the pyramids, right? But when you look at the pyramids, you know, they're, they're massive and they're impressive in that sense. But, but, you know, all the beauty of them is long since gone. All the dazzling marble with which they were once covered is all long since stripped away. They're falling apart, is the point, because they were built by men. Not by God. God has pitched the tent, he says, verse 2, the tabernacle, the true one, the heavenly one. Everything else is just a substitute, just a copy. All man-made sanctuaries are like uh, Zach and Stacy's house. 
Okay. That looked good on the outside when they bought it, but on the inside it was crumbling and falling apart. Okay. So uh, that's what man-made things do. They crumble and they fall apart. So it's a better sanctuary because it's God's building. God's the one who pitched it. Beyond that, it's a, uh, we have a better sacrifice, he lays out for us. A better sacrifice. That's in verses 3 and 4. A better sacrifice. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. What he's saying is that um, by necessity, Jesus has to be in the heavenly sanctuary. Because if he were still on earth, there would the old system still going and there'd be no room for him. He couldn't enter in. He couldn't offer the sacrifices. Why? Well, because he doesn't come from a priestly tribe. It's as simple as that. He's locked out by the law. You know, when you think about Jesus' earthly ministry, he, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he taught the truth about God, right? He said, I am the Son of God. Yet he never enters into the, into the um, uh, Herod's temple beyond that which any other pious Jewish male would do. He never exercised prerogative to go beyond where he should go because he was of the wrong tribe. He wasn't a priest. And that earthly tabernacle. And so he can't enter into it. But now in the heavenly tabernacle. The authentic sanctuary. He is at home. And there he. It says offers a sacrifice. Right? You look at verses 3 and 4. And basically what it's saying is. You know that's a priest's job to offer sacrifice. And so Jesus has to offer a sacrifice too. Okay, in fact, Hebrews 5.1 basically says that's the high priest's job to offer gifts and sacrifice. So Jesus has to have a sacrifice and a gift to offer as well. And what was it? It was himself. He offered himself. All right. And that leads us really into the into what I say, the fourth reason why it's a better, why it's better, better, better. You know, it's a better sacrifice because if you just let your eyes slip back to verse 27 of chapter 7. It's better because it was only offered once. It was singular versus repetitive. And that point is going to be hammered on over and over and over again. Jesus offered a single sacrifice. One offering took care of the problem. It would be like this, maybe. It would be like having a a certain um, detergent that you could wash your kitchen floor with once... Okay, and it would always remain clean. How's that? Okay, anybody who's ever washed kitchen floors, and you know, you know the frustration of washing the kitchen floor, right? And and then an hour later, somebody slobs something on it, and it's dirty again, right? So you got to wash it again. Well, Jesus is a detergent that washed the kitchen floor once and for all, and it's always clean. Okay, well, if you don't like that, then you think of your own illustration. <laughs> it's singular, not repetitive. That's why it's better. Beyond that, it fifth reason, it cleans from the inside out. It cleans from the inside out. And for that, you have to, uh, to slip over to chapter 9, verse 14. He says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, clean your, clean your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it, it not only cleans us on the outside, it cleans us on the inside, including our conscience. When his sacrifice has been embraced by faith, and we are now a child of God, our conscience has been clean. There's, there's no longer a continuing awareness of the old sin. It's, it's gone. It's taken away. Yet under the old system, where you continually had to come and offer sacrifice repetitively, what you had was a vivid reminder constantly of the fact that you are defiled, are a sinner. And so internally, your conscience can never escape that reality. Now in Christ, you're cleansed both inside and out. And that leads us to our sixth reason why it's better, and that is better promises. It's built on better promises. Verses 6 and 7 here. It says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Jesus' ministry is a better ministry because it's built on a better covenant. That's what he's communicating. A better covenant. A, a covenant that is superior to the old covenant. A covenant that has power within itself. A covenant of which Jesus himself is the mediator, he says. Now, in a first century business context, a, a mediator was a, an arbitrator or a go-between. The word was, was used, it was frequently part of, of a first century Greek business terminology. And so what he's, what he's saying here is Jesus is the arbitrator of this new covenant. He is the, the mediator of this better covenant. Moses was a mediator of the old covenant, Galatians 3 and verse 19. He was the go-between in the old covenant, but the problem was Moses was also a participant in it, Right? He was the go-between, but he was also subject to it. He was under it. Jesus is, is our go-between, God and man. But he, because of his incarnation as fully man and fully God and perfect in his humanity, he, rem- he is the perfect go-between. He is not subject to the covenant himself. In fact, he told Nathaniel over in John chapter 1, verse 51, that he is the latter between heaven and earth. You remember that? Remember Jacob's ladder, right? When he had the vision and he saw the angels ascending and descending. Jesus says to Nathaniel, I am the ladder. I am the go between heaven and earth, between God and man. And it's built, this better covenant is enacted, verse 6, the end, on better promises. What are those better promises? Well, they're laid out for us, really, in verses 8 and following. Well, I'll just read them for you here. We'll pull it apart and take a more in-depth look at it next week. But he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord, 
For all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. These are the better promises, the better promises upon which the better covenant is built, of which Jesus is that mediator. So it's built on better promises. And then finally, it is a perfect covenant, not a faulty covenant. The new covenant is better than the old because it is a perfect covenant, not a faulty covenant. Look, verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. What's he saying? Well, he's just observing the fact that how God works. We're used to our companies introducing new product all the time in order to generate demand, in order to generate sales, right? It's not necessarily better. It's just new so that people will buy it. Well, he's saying that God doesn't work that way. By definition with God, if something is new, it is better. Because if the old were, uh, <clears throat> were perfect or, or did the job, they wouldn't, he would never introduce the new. So by virtue of the very fact that he introduces something new, he's saying that what was wasn't satisfactory. It needs to be replaced. If the old covenant were working, there would be no need for a new one. It's really as simple as that. If the old covenant were doing the job, there would be no need for a new one. But it wasn't. It was faulty, verse 7. He says, faulty. The old covenant, beloved, had one great big fault with it. One great big problem with it. And the problem wasn't in the covenant itself. The problem lies, according to Romans 8 and verse 3, the problem lies with the people into which the covenant is made. And it's simple. The problem is, is that they... They want to keep it. That's what they said. We, you know, all that the Lord has, has given to us, we will do. It was their desire to keep it. The problem is, the, the fault of the covenant is, is they can't. It's as simple as that. They couldn't keep it. They lacked the power to obey despite their intention. And so the covenant itself had to be replaced. It wasn't working. But the new covenant overcomes that problem. The new covenant is not hindered by that problem, by the problem of man's inability to keep his part of the bargain. And why? Again, it's, it's given to us down here in verses 10 and 11. It's because now it's put inside of us. The law is no longer external hovering over us as a judge. It now resides within us as our hearts desire. And according to Ezekiel 36, the heart of stone has been removed in a divine open heart surgery and the heart of flesh has replaced it. And now there resides within us not only the want to, but that accompanied by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have not only the desire to do it, but we have the power to do it. And so the whole or the problem or the fault in the old covenant is replaced by the new covenant, which is perfect. It contains within it the power to fulfill it. It's tragic, really, if you think about this, that there are millions and millions of Jewish people today still trying to relate to God under a faulty covenant, under a covenant that just doesn't work. 
when their own prophet told them there would be a new covenant. A new covenant that would work. Yet they remain fast stuck in the old ways. Beloved, we're not of Jewish origin, at least most of us. Right? We are the Gentiles. Yet, in the grace of God, and we'll talk more about this next week, we receive the spiritual blessing of this perfect new covenant. We get all the benefit of the perfection of the covenant. That lying within us is the desire and the will to do the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the law of God written on our hearts, the forgiveness of our sin, such that God remembers it no more in the cleansing of our conscience. We have all kinds of benefits that come to us as recipients of this new covenant. Beloved, it's better in every direction you look, right? It's a better covenant. It's enacted in a better sanctuary. And it's enacted on a better sacrifice. It's easy for us to sit back here and and to say, you know, I don't understand why they would want to go back. Why would anyone want to go back to that old stuff, that old way? Well, what old things are we trying to drag in? What are we tempted to bring alongside of our pure devotion to Jesus Christ? What is it that we're unwilling to let go of and want to keep and bring along with us? We have our baggage too, don't we? But we need to understand better covenant, better promise, better sacrifice, better place. It's Christ alone. It's Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you because he has, as was read to us earlier, he has fulfilled all for us. And that by virtue of our faith union with him, we are now the recipients of the great promises to Israel, the great spiritual promises of the new covenant. And so, our Father, we are no longer bound under the old. We, we have no need to go back. It's all new for us. But, Lord God, we also are frail. And, and so we confess that we attempt to bring things alongside of it ourselves. Forgive us for such foolishness, Lord. Let us... Jettison those things and cling only and completely to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our Father, in the weeks ahead, as we begin to unfold this section about better, 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 may you drive that message deep within our hearts so that our purity of devotion to Jesus Christ would grow, so that our understanding of the riches in Christ would increase, so that our worship of Christ would be pure. We ask these things in his name. Amen.